Hello, my name is Jasper Bouvery. Welcome to Green Persuaders, the positive podcast where I talk to people who are dedicating their lives to the planet. I'll be finding out where their ideas have come from and about the journeys they've been on to realise their dreams. This week, for the third edition, I'm visiting Boar Place near Sevenoaks in West Kent. This 500-acre farm, together with its Jacobean mansion and numerous outbuildings, was bought in 1976 by Neil Waits and his wife Jennifer, and they embarked on building a centre for sustainability, establishing the Commonwork Land Trust and the Commonwork Organic Farm. Neil died in 1985, but Jennifer continues to take an interest in the running of the centre, and much more besides. Before I met with her, I met with the Boar Place project coordinator, Lydia Anguish, who showed me round. We began down by the cow sheds, but there were no cows to be seen. They'll come in twice a day to milk, so it'll be an early morning milk, and then around three o'clock this afternoon, you'll see them come in for milking again. All of the other time of the day, they're out, they're out grazing on the fields, essentially. In total, Boar Place supports a herd of 250 dairy cows, but milk production is by no means the only activity that takes place on the site. There's also a cheese factory, an organic market garden, a wind turbine, nature play trails through extensive woodland, a small conference centre. It's an ecologist's dream, somewhere that has evolved to embrace many different interconnecting activities, where cows, and indeed humans, are not the only species being looked after. In fact, speaking of ecologists... Our resident ecologist is basically assessing everything from the soil, to the bats on site, to the newts on site, to the dormouse on site, to see how everything's sort of um, sitting at the moment in terms of the history of our ecology. So this ecologist, I mean, what, what, what's their name? Uh, so the ecologist is Heather, um, she's fantastic. She essentially is everywhere at all times. Um, we've recently created some habitats for reptile translocation, for example. So up by the market garden, but we've been working on creating those habitats that are so important and inherent, inherent for monitoring reptiles, for example, on site. Um, and we have actually been really fortunate in last week we found a grass snake. So that's really positive to see, even at these initial stages, the life is there, we're just sort of scratching the surface. Focus on small mammals and reptiles might be a feature of Boar Place, but there are also a lot of humans around. For the organic market garden, there's the market gardener. For the house, there are housekeepers, events managers and wedding planners. In total, the place employs about 60 people. Most are paid, but there are also interns and volunteers. There's even an underwoodsman. This is um, John Waller, who's our underwoodsman. Amazing, they're hazel canes, are they? Yeah, so he does all hazel and willow weaving here. Um, wow. And that's all regenerative. He grows it all on site, manufactures it all on site and holds courses as well. I confess that I'd never come across an underwoodsman, so I had to Google when I got home. The underwood is the collective name for the small trees and shrubs that grow beneath the taller trees in any woodland. John Waller, as the underwoodsman, manages the underwood which provides wood for his craft. So all of our sort of hurdles and fences here, we tried to get John to make them as well. So even those small decisions in terms of, you know, what washing up liquid we use, the paint on the walls in our cottages, things like that, 
everything has to be thought of in terms of longevity, reusable, and also just the raw material needs to be from the right place. Yeah. And it's, it's lovely to be sort of fostering local crafts again, presumably. Oh yeah, and that also links back with the heritage of the site. It is these ancient crafts, along with our ancient woodlands as well, because John also, as well as doing the green woodwork and the craft work, he manages all of our woodland, because his background is too in ecology, so he is invaluable in terms of having that historic perspective on where we stand from a biodiversity perspective. Holding courses, teaching children, providing away days for corporate employees, hosting environmentally friendly weddings. Boar Place is visited by large numbers of people. Over 8,000 visited in June 2022. These days, it's not unusual for farms to be looking to diversify their income streams, but it certainly helps if you have large premises, an established market garden, and various eco-craft activities happening on site, not to mention jam and chutney making. We have our regular SEND groups, which is special educational needs groups, um, and they come and manage this little plot of land. So as we can see around us, there's flower beds, there's fruit and vegetables, um, and there's accessible beds as well. So for those possibly with a wheelchair, they can join in with the gardening as well. Um, and then as you can see sort of further along, we've got um, fruits growing. So we have raspberries and black currants every year. And we really take a circular approach with that. So the kids will come out and they manage it and they see it right through to the end of life. So to harvesting the raspberries, to creating raspberry jam. Do they come regularly throughout the season? Oh yeah, absolutely. So we have, um, so if you were to just take a glance at our planner, we're pretty much booked in every day. So every day, Monday to Friday, we have regular send groups. Um, which are different, so we've got different ones on a Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. And then in between those slots, we also provide education provisions for um, local school groups, for example, who might want to just come and do a team building day away, something like that, for example. Lydia has only been at Boar Place for a couple of years, but you can tell how passionate she is about it, and I can see why. Much of our farmland in the UK is closed off a private province for farmers and agribusiness. Boar Place represents something very different, an open approach where farming involves many people and many discussions about how the land is managed, what is best not just for humans but also for all the creatures that live there. It is an inspirational place. So how did it come about? Jennifer Waits has been there from the very start. As I said earlier, she and her husband Neil bought the land in 1976. I met her in the very room where they had their initial planning meetings and asked her about their inspiration. We were very anxious about nuclear power for one thing because we thought it's actually all about nuclear weapons. So we got into, then we got into the whole question of resources and the Club of Rome had reported that resources were being wasted and were not infinite as people seem to be behaving as though they were infinite. Uh, and we read Silent Spring, a lovely book by Rachel Carson about what was happening to the soil and to biodiversity. It's rather depressing to hear about these foreboding works which were published so long ago, 
and yet it feels like so little has moved on since their publication. The Club of Rome's seminal work, The Limits to Growth, was published in 1972. It laid out clearly how a rising population, industrialization, and resource use couldn't be sustained. Rachel Carson's book, Silent Spring, was actually published a decade earlier. It led to the widespread ban on DDT for agricultural use around the world. But conventional modern farming still works very much hand-in-hand with the world's chemical industry. So the state of the world in the 1970s was one thing that prompted Neil and Jennifer to act. But they were also concerned about people, and specifically how modern working practices were destroying people's creativity and their spirit. We had both had experience of the way people were tending to be just users for their utility rather than for their gifts, as it were. I mean, Neil in his building company discovered there were lots of talents that were not drawn upon by the business. Um, He discovered this through having an open day when everybody was invited to bring their friends and family to, and to put on a display. And this revealed so much creativity amongst people. Uh, meantime, I had become a juvenile court magistrate in inner London and had become aware of a lot of problems, and especially I was very conscious of problems about bringing up young people because we had our own five children. Uh, and um, I met up with various people, women who were trying to make things better in the in the society uh, in Brixton, for instance. Uh, and they felt they wanted to do something, but they had no voice. So they bought the farm off one of the Beverly sisters and set about farming, although they had no previous experience of farming at all. To me, it all felt rather similar to the more recent exploits of Ed Kirk Smith who I featured in the first episode of Green Persuaders, except Neil had plenty of money on account of being from a family that built houses. So they were able to do things on a large scale and have over the years been able to have a most satisfactory impact. Countless numbers of people have come here over the 40 years or whatever it is we've been here and we've had so many testimonies of people basically shifting their worldview you know, deciding to do something different with their life. Children discovering nature, because so many children these days, especially if they're brought up brought up in towns by families that are not, haven't got a lot of money, so they, they don't... And children don't get out into the country in the way that they used to. They do when they come here, and you can see the absolute transformation. Having created such a beautiful space, and with the appreciation of all the visitors to Bore Place ringing in her ears... Jennifer could have been forgiven for putting her feet up. But rest isn't something that comes easily to her, and at the age of 89, she's still passionate about saving the planet. While the management of the place has been passed on to others, she still takes a keen interest in what's going on, sitting on the trustee board and knowing about all the contentious issues that the farm has to wrestle with. I asked her about the thorny issue of cows, for example and their emissions. The way we work with the cows, organic food and so forth, they don't create nearly as much methane as cows do that are run on a big scale with a lot of fertiliser and stuff. So um, 
Uh, but it's still it's still a question, a bit of a question. Uh, that, that's I was going to ask because mm. there would be people who say that cows we shouldn't be you know farming them at all. Um, well, there would be people who say that, but the thing is, our our idea is that we still need to create sustainable food. Uh, and so the question is, how do you do regenerative, sustainable agriculture, which is what we're trying to practice here? So it's very different from people having cows in vast numbers, uh, you know, and using a lot of um, chemicals on the land. Because we, as organic farmers, the basis is good soil. And so we had to do a lot of work to bring the soil here into a decent condition because it was deplete, very, very depleted when we came. It took 10 years, actually, before we could go organic. Before you see. And the cows are important in that? Well, they're important because they create the, the muck. If you're going to have anything growing, you still need some sort of compost or something to put on the land. So animals, are, uh, as long as you don't let them degrade the land, and that's where we have to have the entrances to the fields have to be treated with so that they don't get churned up too much. And then the cows have to go into the cow sheds over the winter because this land being very heavy, they would damage it by the constant hooves going on it. So I think it's a question of how you manage your animals, whatever kind of animal farming you do. Decisions about management of Boar Place are not made by a single individual. The Board of Trustees, 11 strong, will chew over the decisions together. And unlike many farms, they won't just be thinking about the bottom line. What is ethical and what will benefit both humans and other species are also important considerations. Jennifer actually lives away from the farm now, near Oxford, and gets involved with even bigger issues. Sometimes I wake up in the morning and I feel so angry. I feel a terrible rage. And it gets worse all the time because the government does things which are making it worse. They want to stop people protesting, they want to minimise people voting, they want to have control of the Electoral Commission, you know, send refugees to Rwanda. You know, I can't tolerate it. It's absolutely awful. So who does she try to influence now? Now, governments and corporations. Um, I actually try to persuade people we should focus on government and corporations, not people, so not, not... um, inconveniencing ordinary people because I just think that turns them against us. So do you get involved in that fight? Yes. How do you get involved? I'm a red rebel and I'm a member of XR. Has there been a particular protest that you think has been particularly successful or that you enjoyed more than others? Yeah, my favourite is, uh, I love being a Red Rebel actually, because I don't know if you've come across them, but it's basically a sort of dance that we do together. We're all dressed in red and our faces are whited out, so we're not ourselves, we are icons saying, um, expressing our grief and expressing our rage, expressing our hope, expressing our love with our movements. And it's beautiful. So if you had um, the opportunity to invite, what have we got? We've got five other chairs in this room. If you had the opportunity to invite some people here to Boar Place to show mm. what you, mm. you've achieved here and to talk to them about what needs to be done in the future, who, who would you invite? 
Well, I mean, as we've got a prime minister, I suppose it would be important. I, mean, I don't have any hope that that prime minister would actually do anything, because I think he would be very charming while he was here uh, and make us all feel, oh, yes, how nice Boris, with his tousled hair and everything. But he would go away and do nothing at all, because he he's not interested in anything except what aids his self-image and his success. You get the impression that Jennifer is still trying to persuade people every single day, using all the time that she may have available. My conceptual question about who would you invite into this room to persuade is switched very easily into who do I try to persuade now and where do I do it? One of the actions that I also like doing is we meditate outside Barclays Bank in Oxford. A row of us dressed in black um, meditate for an hour or two outside the bank. We've noticed that the reason being Barclays is the biggest financier of fossil fuel development. Um, still, last time I was there was a couple of weeks ago, that we had an um, XR steel band playing, and it was lovely because lots of people stopped and listened to the music and danced about and uh, realised that we were there and took leaflets and looked at the banners and everything. Yes. Well, so it's the politicians, it's the banks. Who who else needs companies? To, who else needs to insurance companies, mm. uh, because they're insuring these big projects. It's people who are still involved in that circus, as it were, um, of you know elite people jumping into aeroplanes, flying all over the world, um, meeting up with other people like themselves not ever meeting up with a poor person or somebody who's been impacted by the climate change. If somebody came here, maybe we could have some top person and some person who's a refugee, because there's no meeting between these two halves of the population. Though it's not even a half, of course, it's a tiny, the elite is a tiny proportion, and yet they've got our fate in their hands. There's a health risk that comes with researching green persuaders. Jennifer, like all the other people I've talked to for this series, has analysed the world's woes. That is what drives her. And she tells everyone else the woes because she's hoping that this will prompt other people, like myself, into action. The problem is that many of us shrink away from gloomy news because it's just too depressing and we're easily distracted. We find other things to do. I felt a bit ashamed when I left that I don't go on marches, that I've never dressed up as a red rebel. I've been distracted by parents and children. Jennifer has created the most beautiful farm in West Kent, a very unusual farm which genuinely appears to be open to all. But for her, that isn't enough. Things are, there are little signs and shoots, but it's a bit late. It's very late. We're just nearly at the precipice. And I think I've got great-grandchildren um, and I get very worried about how is life going to be for those children. Mm. Uh, very worrying. Next week I visit the Orkney Islands off the north coast of Scotland. I went there on holiday with my wife Alice and managed to catch up with the local convener of the Green Party, the first politician to declare a party affiliation on the Orkney Islands Council, we met on the seawall at Kirkwall to discuss energy and waste and salmon. The podcast will be published next Wednesday, the 27th of July. Please subscribe so you don't miss it.